We are in 1 John in our study, our back in the New Testament for the fall. And so let me encourage you to find 1 John in your Bible. And we're going to read those first four verses of the first chapter this morning. So after you have found 1 John, stand with me and let's read it together. 1 John 1, one. What was from the beginning, what we have heard... What we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this precious hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can have fellowship with uh, you and with other believers. And Lord, we thank you so much for this word that is given to us that uh, uh, lays out your truth. Help us that we would not be people who fall prey to false teaching or error in any way, that we might uh, stay with the pure teaching of your word, that uh, we would be grounded in your truth And, Lord, that we would be a people that are uh, living according to your revealed will. So, Lord, we pray once again as we worship that our hearts would be set on you, that we would express to you our thanksgiving, that we would express our praise, uh, that you are worthy of all glory and honor and uh, praise. And so, Lord, we offer that up to you this morning. Lord, we pray that... uh, you, by your Holy Spirit, will work in our hearts and minds, and that we would be open and receptive to all that you have for us today. So, Lord, we pray for those who might not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that they would come to that assurance of salvation. And, Lord, we pray that all of us uh, would be faithful as servants to you. And, Lord, we thank you for the joy that we have of uh, serving. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, you and I live in a very interesting and often frustrating uh, day. On one hand, as you probably know, the dictionary definition of tolerance has been totally changed. And those who often clamor for tolerance are intolerant themselves. But on the other hand, our world looks with suspicion on anyone who holds strong convictions in regard to the truth. For the most part, we have thrown out absolutes, and we have granted equal validity to any and every opinion. And although we might expect that in the world, sadly, even in the church, we see the same thing. The evangelical church has become so influenced by our culture that we have fallen prey to a form of inclusivism that tolerates seemingly 
any and every worldview except dogmatism. One of the primary ways that this has shown up in the church has been in the area of hermeneutics. The new hermeneutics of the last couple of decades has accepted the faulty premise that no one can know for sure what the original authors of Scripture were intending. So many interpreters of the Bible uh, say that we need to be uh, humble and we need to acknowledge that we really don't know what it says or what it means. This has led to the idea that uh, we're left simply with reading our own interpretation into the Bible. MacArthur says, according to this viewpoint, the Bible is so obscure that anyone who exegetes Scripture should offer nothing more than a cautious, humble, open-minded opinion in regard to the text's meaning. Now, what's the problem with that? It goes against the Bible's own teaching that God intends for us to know his truth that he has given to us in Scripture. God's word clearly instructs us to rightly divide his word of truth so we can have a proper understanding of it, not only of the original author's intended meaning, but the unchanging principles that God wants us to live by. Unfortunately, these new ideas about Bible interpretation have led to much uncertainty and lack of confidence in God's truths. But we don't find any of that in 1 John. We find clear, dogmatic proclamation of the truth of God from an authoritarian, authoritative voice from the last of Christ's apostles. In fact, all the writers of the New Testament communicate with this same authoritative way, but perhaps none as forcefully as John. This apostle speaks with bold, dogmatic Clarity. He speaks in terms of black and white. He talks about absolutes. And John is going to address three main themes in this book. He is going to deal with the theological certainty regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's going to deal with the issue of assurance of salvation and the evidence of that spiritual reality. And he's going to address the moral certainty of the commands of God along with the relational aspect of Christian love. This morning, we're going to be looking at what is usually referred to as the prologue. And here we will see that John is really so focused on communicating these theological truths that he does not even give any words of introduction. He does not name himself as the author. He does not give any kind of greeting. He does not identify his audience in any way. He simply launches right into his message. 
And in fact, this prologue is really one long sentence in the Greek language, and that is unusual for John. Because his communication style is usually in short, pithy statements. This is more like Paul here, but in this long, complex sentence, he sets the tone for the rest of the book. This prologue verifies the heart of the gospel, namely that eternal life has been manifested in the incarnate Son of God. In verse 1, he proclaims that this is all concerning the word of life. It is only John in the New Testament who identifies the Lord Jesus as the word. And of course, in his gospel, he began by saying, in the beginning was the word. And he goes on in that gospel to clearly identify that as the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. John also wrote the Revelation. And in Revelation 19, verses 12 and 13, we're told he had a name and his name is called the Word of God. Here in 1 John, he's identified as the word of life. The word of life. Someone might ask, well, why does John refer to Jesus in this way? Well, part of this is to counter certain philosophical ideas in regard to the concept of words. But primarily, it is to communicate God's truth. What is the purpose of words? It is to communicate something. And that is exactly what God is doing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is communicating his truth to us. Someone once said, Jesus is the noun of God, the verb of God, and the adjective of God. Jesus articulates God. We know God through him. Apart from his person and work, we would not know God in a full and complete way. Now, before we even move into this text, let me just point out that there's been a debate among scholars as to whether this concept of the word of life refers to Jesus generally, to Jesus in his incarnation, or to the message of the gospel that he came to bring? My answer is all of the above. All the above. We're going to clearly see that John will use that phrase interchangeably to speak of Christ himself and to speak of the gospel that he came to bring. We're even going to see that in this prologue. One commentator wrote, Jesus is both the preacher of God's message and the message itself. John is going to use this concept of the word of life in a similar way to which Paul used the concept when he said, we preach Christ in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. 
That phrase is intended to show that both the message and the person are one and the same. So with that introduction, let's move into this passage. And I just want to warn you up front that we are going to slow way down from uh, the pace that we were going in 1 Samuel, okay? This is deep doctrinal teaching. We need to make sure that we drink it all in. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take us even to get through this prologue, but we're going to take our time. We're not going to hurry through it. Now, I've broken this prologue down into six divisions, and uh, I hope you will understand why as we go along. But let's begin with the premise, the premise. Look with me again at verse 1. What was from the beginning? Whoa, stop right there. This is how John begins this letter. But what does this phrase mean? Is he saying something similar to what he communicated in his gospel, that Jesus was already in existence at the creation of the world? Is that what he's saying? Is he referring to the beginning of creation or to eternity past? Is he speaking of the beginning of the gospel or the time of the incarnation? What's he referring to here? There's been a lot of disagreement on this. Now, we're going to see, even in this prologue, a clear reference to Christ's eternality, that he existed in eternity past. But here, it seems, John is more focused on his incarnation. Unlike the Gospel of John, he's not emphasizing here the fact that he existed before the creation of the world. But that from the very moment he came into this world as a man, his apostles were able to verify his true humanity. And remember, one of the main purposes for this letter is to combat Gnosticism. So this phrase is likely setting the stage for that. The argument that follows makes this clear. So the beginning in this instance probably refers to the incarnation, the beginning of Jesus' life as a man in this world. Hebert says, John's expression was from the beginning marks the continuing reality of the incarnation since the birth of the Virgin Mary's babe in Bethlehem. So in this way, this would coincide with John's statement in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what Paul called the mystery. In 1 Timothy 3.16, he said, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness He was revealed in the flesh. The invisible Christ was born and became visible and lived among men in a human body. And the Apostle John, by calling him the word of life here in 1 John, is reiterating 
what he said in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So this is the basic premise. But from this, John moves on to the palpability. Do you like that word, palpability? It's not a very common word anymore, but it means that which is obvious, evident, or plainly seen. Here, John is going to point to evidence that Jesus was, in fact, fully human. This is something the Gnostics had denied. And so John is going to hit this head on right here at the very beginning of his letter. Look again at verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Now here the phrase word of life obviously points to Jesus himself. Contrary to what the false teachers were saying, Jesus Christ in his incarnation was not just some sort of phantom. He was not just some sort of mystical, spiritually transcendent being. He had a real physical body that could be empirically verified by the eyewitness accounts from those who were with him in the days of his ministry. In fact, what we have here right at the beginning of this letter is the strongest personal testimony to the historical Jesus that we find anywhere in the Bible. The use of the plural pronoun we here points to all the apostles They were all eyewitnesses of both his full humanity and his full divinity. And listen very carefully. Any teaching that denies either one is false. It's false. If somebody in some false cult comes up to you and and says that Jesus is not fully God, just say, I'm not buying it. That's not what the Bible says. And if some modern Gnostic tries to tell you he was not fully human, just say, no, thank you. I'm going to stick with what the Word of God declares. Because the Bible clearly proclaims that Jesus is the infinite God-man. Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. So John testifies that he had personal, first-hand experience in the presence of Jesus Christ that could be verified through his own natural senses as confirmation of his humanity. And he lists here four ways that he knew this to be true. First, through the auditory senses. Look at verse 1 again. What we have heard. John is saying... I heard his voice with my own ears. He's saying, I'm not mistaken. His voice was a real human voice. You know, they didn't have recording devices back in those days, but if they had, they could have recorded his voice. And his words were perfectly understandable 
The Greek word used here implies that the apostles had received a revelation which human beings are capable of understanding. It implies an auditory reception of words communicated in clear and a clear and understandable way. And this tells us that they were hearing the utterances of a real historical person. What were those utterances? His parables, his sermons, his private words of instruction to his disciples, his commands, his rebukes, his encouragements, everything he said over three years' time. This was not just a single occasion. It was a constant hearing over a period of time. The verb, have heard, is in the perfect tense, which means these were words that were spoken in the past but still had impact in the present. So John is saying, you know, it's been 60 years since I heard his audible voice, but his words are still having a radical impact in my life. The lives of the apostles were changed forever by what they heard from Jesus' lips. There is absolutely no doubt that the words of the Lord were still ringing in John's ears. Then he said, what we have seen with our eyes. This verb is also in the perfect tense. What they had seen with their eyes also impacted them forever. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him calm the sea. They saw him walk on water. They saw him give sight to the blind and make the lame walk. They saw him cast out demons with a single word. They were first-hand witnesses of all his mighty works. And notice John adds, with our eyes. This is clearly a reference to the physical act of seeing. He's not talking about some kind of mystical spiritual vision that was only in their minds. No, these were things that had actually physically been seen by the apostles as they took place in history. This is one of the greatest evidences of the truth and reliability of the New Testament. There were some men and a few women who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. They were there when he performed his miracles. They witnessed his death and resurrection. They saw the empty tomb on Easter Sunday morning. You know, they didn't have TV cameras back in those days, but if they had, they could have captured these events for all the world to see. Instead, they put it in writing in what we call the New Testament. They had observed these kinds of things with their normal vision for over three years. In fact, John goes on to say, what we beheld. This takes the sensory evidence even further. This is the Greek word theomai, which from where we get our English word theater. The word means to gaze upon. So this implies a beholding over a long period of time. This was not just a 
quick glance. This is a long gaze. It means to examine thoroughly. So John, in essence, is saying, we examined him thoroughly. This was no hallucination. This was no passing glance. It was an intense gaze continually over a three-year period. They had beheld him. They had beheld him in every possible situation you can imagine. And the more they saw, the more convinced they became that he was indeed God in human form. Finally, John said, and our hands handled. The word that is used here is a word that was often used of a blind man feeling his way along. This is not a simple one-time bumping into him. This is a prolonged experience of knowing without doubt that he had a real physical body. John had become known as the one who leaned against Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Thomas was admonished with the use of the very same term to put his fingers into Jesus' hands and feet after his resurrection. There was more than enough evidence of his physical reality. In fact, when Jesus encouraged Thomas to touch him in Luke 24, 39, Luke reports, he said, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. They knew he was real. They knew he had a physical body. The apostles would have no doubt had contact with Jesus physically all the time in their daily course of companionship with him. But there were certain times when it was more obvious. This may be what John had in mind. And it is clear here that John is combating the Gnostic error. And he's making the case for the palpability of belief in Jesus as fully man and fully God. But then in verse 2, we see the parenthesis, the parenthesis. Verse 2 is a parenthesis containing some additional information. Look at it with me. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the life was manifested. The word that is used for manifested there, of course, means to reveal or to make visible what was hidden. Hebert says this comprehends the entire process whereby his life became visible and tangible. Vine says that in scriptural usage, this verb denotes more than mere appearance. He says to be manifested is to be revealed in one's true character and nature not only was the second person of the trinity hidden until his incarnation but the very nature of god was at least veiled 
We could not fully know God apart from the person and work of Christ in this world. But with the coming of Jesus into the world as a man, we could have a better understanding of the nature and character of God that had been hidden before this time. And notice that the concept of the life or even the eternal life is equated with Jesus himself. This is made clear by the fact that he was with the Father. That's where he was before he was manifested to us. But this statement also implies that, was, that he was eternally coexistent with the Father. In this phrase, John is going back to emphasize what he did in the very first part of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The preposition with depicts a face-to-face relationship with the Father. This is important because it indicates that there were two separate persons sharing the, the same nature. Ebert says the preposition John uses portrays the identity of this life as distinct from the Father, yet in active communion and fellowship with the Father. David Jackman says it portrays the closest sort of face-to-face fellowship existing in the eternal mystery of the Godhead. But why is Jesus referred to here in 1 John 1-2 as the life and the eternal life? It is because he came to bring eternal life to all who receive him as Savior and Lord. Jesus said in John 5, 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus Christ is the source of life and eternal life. The Father and the Son have the same divine life, and they work together to bring eternal life to us. Jesus explained this more fully in John 6 when he said, beginning in verse 37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have not come down from heaven, or I have, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now, John's going to put it a little different way in the last chapter of this epistle. He's going to say, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is the source of life, eternal life. In John 5, he said, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Life is in Christ. 
and in Christ alone. Life, true life, eternal life, is only found in Jesus Christ. And if you're unwilling to come to Him and receive Him as Savior and Lord, you will not have that life. The apostles were eyewitnesses to this truth. Their job was to bear witness to this gospel, and that leads us, fourthly, to the proclamation. The proclamation. For John, as for the other apostles, these truths were not just academic or theological. They were extremely practical. Look with me at the first part of verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. For John, that which was manifested to him, the word of life, became the basis for the proclamation of God's truth. He wasn't given the privilege of being with Jesus Christ in personal communion for three years just for his own personal benefits. No, this privilege became the foundation of his responsibility as an apostle. The apostles were to serve as eyewitnesses in order that they might proclaim the truth of the gospel to all the world. And, of course, the application for us here is not even subtle. Although we are not apostles, we are not eyewitnesses of his earthly work and ministry, we are, though, his witnesses. And our experience with the word of life leads to the responsibility to be a witness for him. Unlike John, we're not eyewitnesses, but we can still point people to eternal life. It's never enough just to know the truth. We also need to proclaim the truth. But John had a special responsibility in this regard. He was an apostle. He was an eyewitness. And because of his widespread reputation as one who had been with Jesus, he was an especially authoritative voice. He was a dependable and credible witness. Other New Testament books written by the apostles or their associates also carried the same kind of authority. In fact, John wrote in John 19, 35 and 36, He who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled. The apostles had the unique responsibility of bearing witness to Jesus. That, that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And that their witness of Christ was true and dependable. And that those who believe in Jesus will be saved forever. That was the message they proclaimed. We also must proclaim that same message. And notice what John does in verse 3. He reiterates that this is all based on sensory eyewitness testimony. He says, that which we have seen and heard. It's the same thing we saw in verse 1, only in reverse order. And by putting sight in front of hearing, he may be emphasizing that 
this is the most convincing element, but both of these verbs testify to his physical reality. Kistemacher explains by reiterating the same verbs, John seems to warn the readers against false doctrines that deny the human nature, the physical appearing, and the bodily resurrection of Christ. Again, he's fighting the Gnostic heretics here. He's making it absolutely clear that Jesus had a real physical body throughout his entire lifetime. And John says, these are things we declare to you. Now, the wording of this has the air of an official declaration, uh, like a government envoy. This is like that of an ambassador proclaiming the message of a king. And note that the word proclaim in verse 3 is in the Greek present tense. And so John really is saying, we make it our business to proclaim this to you. I think it'd probably be good for us to stop right here this morning. I don't want to rush through the last part of this prologue because it's so rich in application. And so we'll look at that next time. The question, though, as always is, what does this mean for us today? What do we need to take away from this message from the Holy Spirit through John? First is the absolute confidence that Jesus Christ is exactly who the apostles proclaim him to be. He is the very Son of God, and in his incarnation he was fully God and fully man at the same time. The miraculous things that he did and the incredible things about God that he taught us are fully and completely verified by eyewitnesses like John. So we can have full confidence in the New Testament and the message of the gospel. All these things were actual historical events that occurred in real space and time on this earth. None of it is myth. None of it is legend. All of it is historically true and accurate. So we need to have full confidence in that. Secondly, we need to join with the witnesses, the apostles who were eyewitnesses. We need to join with them as witnesses for Christ. We can still testify to the truth of the gospel because we have the eyewitness testimony in the New Testament. And all of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, have the same responsibility to proclaim God's truth. We must point to Jesus Christ as the word of life. We must make it clear to all who will hear that he is the only way of salvation, is the only source of eternal life. Now, that may not be a popular message in this pluralistic world of ours today, but that is the message we must proclaim because that's the message of the Bible. Thirdly, we must make sure we're not falling falling into some kind of theological heresy in regard to the nature of Christ. Gnosticism has not gone away 
And we need to make sure we are not being influenced by it even today. We must make sure that we're not turning Jesus into some mythical figure instead of the incarnate God-man. We need to make sure we don't fall for Gnostic ideas today, such as the concept that there is a spark of divinity in all of us and that all people are basically good. Those are Gnostic ideas. Or that those who have the inside track with God or those who have experienced some kind of special enlightenment, that's also a Gnostic idea. These are all notions that are still very much common today, but they're not in line with the teaching of Scripture. And so our protection from false ideas like this is to make sure we're firmly grounded in the truth of Scripture. We need to make sure we're studying our Bibles and we're reading our Bibles diligently and we're rejecting anything that does not line up with the clear teaching of God's Word. Well, these are the lessons for today. What do we need to do with them? We need to apply them to our lives. What about you this morning? Number one, have you received Jesus Christ? Have you received the, received the Word of life? The one who came to bring life and eternal life? Do you know Him? If not, I encourage you this morning, urge you, Come and receive Christ today. He is the only source of eternal life. And then as believers, are we absolutely confident in God's Word? Are we living according to it? And are we living for Him in such a way that uh, we are proclaiming His Word, His Gospel to others, and we're making sure we know His Word to the degree that we won't fall for error and anything false in this world. How do we respond this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would help us to uh, just take these principles that we see right here in the very beginning of this letter, that we might apply them to our lives. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to respond to you and your word in such a way that you would want us to, that um, those who perhaps don't know Christ today would come to know uh, him in in true saving faith. And Lord, I pray that uh, they would receive the gift of eternal life through, through Christ today. Lord, I pray for all of us as believers that we might have absolute confidence in your word. And, uh, to know that we can understand it. We can understand what your word says and the original intent with which you gave it to us, that it is absolutely clear. And Lord, help us to have complete confidence in it and help us to be the proclaimers of your gospel, your word to others. Help us also to make sure we stick with your truths and not veer from that in any way. So help us to apply these truths this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.